and welcome to Graphic Policy Radio, comics podcast for the show folks who think that comics and pirates are a great idea and go better together than comics and, wait, I just totally botched my opening. We're going to have to live with that anyway. Today we have a returning guest. Uh, it's Jeremy Whitley. You may know him as the creator of Princess of Prince Les and his most recent run at Marvel on the Unstoppable Law. Um, he is returning to Graphic Policy Radio to talk about two of my favorite comics about pirates, Raven the Pirate Princess, and the new series, Sea of Thieves, based on the hit video game. Uh, Raven the Pirate Princess is full of humor, high-seas romance, and all the amazing, diverse, queer, and famous lady pirates I wish I had as a kid. And I'm thrilled to be able to read your exploits today. So join us, and we'll be discussing... All of the pirates and all of the feminism and all the hilarity and all the queerness on all these fabulous comics. Hello, Jeremy. Hey, how are you? I'm hearing myself in an echo. I don't know if you perhaps have some volume Um, somewhere. No, let me try and turn it down. Is this any better? Oh, no, your volume was fine. Hold on, maybe it was on my end. Say something. Hello? Yeah, we're good. Okay. Anyway, moving right along. Okay. So, um, you've been on the show a few times now, and I'm excited to have you back. Uh, you know, one of the the inspirations for for having you again on the show was that we've been trying to figure out drumming up some additional sales for for Raven the Pirate Princess, and um, it's funny because I think like whenever I talk to any parents I know, I'm always telling them how important it is for them to check out like uh, to check out Princeless, really being, I think as you said it on the panel, we were on at Awesome Con saying that you, you can't have kids, you can't stop kids from liking princesses, but you can create a princess that's like actually awesome for a change. Um, and, and definitely that comic has, I think, been a, a big draw for families. I'm always seeing moms and dads buying it for their kids. Um, and I just want to help Raven the Pirate Princess find its full, the biggest audience because I just think it's like much fun. And I'm wondering if like like what like what, what are we what are we going to do to make this work? For me, honestly, one of the biggest skills of the series is how much romance there is in it. Um, not gonna lie, I I I I'm somebody who um, finds a lot of romantic subplots handled badly in a lot of comics, and I'm impressed and pleased to see one that is aimed at like it's you know I mean it's hard to get me for me to quite give an age range. You have, you have you have kids. What what does the publisher generally say for ages what and up generally for for Raven the Pirate Princess? Oh, that's been a question of, of some debate, I think, uh, for us, because, um, you know, it, it's it's definitely aimed at a, a slightly more mature audience than Princeless. I mean, uh, specifically, there's, you know, the uh, romance, but there's also uh, a little more in the way of actual fighting and, you know, stabbing. Yeah, I, exactly. I think I, I talk about the fact that in, that in Princeless, in the first issue, I, I gave Adrian a sword and then, like, she can't stab anybody because <laughs> that is a comic <laughs> that is for children. Um, yeah. So, you know, Raven, we, we have a little more leeway that way. Um, I think we've been trying to go a little more um, YA. I think like Princess, it's sort of grown a bit as it's gotten a little older. Um, and, you know, the, I think the intention is that with every year, like Raven gets a little older as well. So, um, you know, I, I feel comfortable with saying it's in sort of a, Twelve and up range. Yeah, yeah. It's to me, it's like it's not like it's inappropriate. It's just for anybody younger. It's just like I wonder if below a certain age, people, kids are just like I don't care that much about kissing subplots. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and I don't really have a sense of that. I, 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 I think that this is just such a fabulous romance comic, and um, and I don't really find that there's that many great ones out there. So that that's really one of the appeals for me personally. Did yeah, you I think it that you know, way from the start. I mean, is that it just end up that way? I think that's you know part of the impetus of you know what got me started on Raven is that there was a lot of questions from from fans of Princess about Adrian's sexuality and um, you know what what she's interested in romantically and uh, largely because of what Princess is about. I mean, the answer is not like she's not really interested in romance that's not her 
thing. Um, you know, specifically not a book about her, um, you know, finding somebody she's romantically interested in, but her not needing a, you know, a person, be they male or female, to, to save her. Um, you know, and Raven, I, I wanted to touch on, you know, that, that question of, uh, of sexuality and, and queerness that we didn't get to touch on in, in Princeless. So I, I think it's the thing for me that, like, there's been a lot of half-hearted attempts in especially mainstream comics that, and queer representation where they, they make sure to point out that a character is gay and at some point have them proclaim it loudly in the story and then not actually do anything romantic or have their you know romantic partner die at some point in the story so that uh, they don't actually have to deal with the romance portion of it. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, that wasn't that wasn't something I, I wanted to do specifically because you know that that is done so often and so sort of poorly. Um, and I wanted to deal with the the romantic stories, and, and I wanted to like really delve into you know that part of Raven as a character, and uh, you know beyond that, to some extent, like Princess, it's a coming of age story, and you know you would. If it were a coming of age story in a you know non comic book, especially if it were about a you know uh heterosexual relationship, like that stuff would be there um so you know I wanted to really make sure that not only did we do it but we got it right um so yeah, I mean not only is it something that I've wanted to do, but it's it's something that like I've sort of run by you know sensitivity readers who have more sort of first hand experience. Um, make sure that, you know, we're, we are doing it right. Um, yeah, I, I think like any romantic subplot, there are probably going to be people that don't love it, but, uh, I think the majority of the feedback we've gotten has been very positive. Cool. I mean, I realized I, I didn't really do much of a setup actually introducing folks to the series, but I think just real quick, I mean, basically you had, you know, Prince List, which was this huge breakout success for, uh, all ages, feminists diverse representation fantasy series that really solves a lot of the problems in old fairy tales and like actually gives people something that's truly funny and fun for all ages to enjoy and in it you introduced raven the pirate princess and she was such a great character that you know she just needed her own series right um and yeah. that is that pretty much how it happens uh yeah i think you know raven was, was initially introduced in our free comic book day story that we did and um, was I thought it was a fun chance for me to, you know, tell a story that I, I thought would be a good story for Free Comic Book Day, and that it, it gives us uh, gives people who hadn't been reading the series a nice sort of introduction from Raven's point of view, you know, not her not knowing what's going on in the story either. Um, but it's you know we don't sort of reprint something that already exists, which is my pet peeve with Free Comic Book Day, um, mm-hmm. where you just get a book you've already paid money for for free. Um, so I wanted something new, but, you know, not mired in the continuity of the two books that were already out. So we created Raven with that in mind. And, you know, even from that outset, I, I wanted Raven to be a, a queer character because, you know, we, we talked about that already and, uh, the need for that representation. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, she was so fun in that story that we sort of blew that up into a whole, you know, four issue arc of princeless. And, um, you know, at the end of that, it didn't feel right for her to continue to stick around in that story. And, um, I mean, she's so sort of high powered that her and her and Adrian are sort of constantly clashing when they're there. Um, Mm. I feel like that would make Adrian's quest both, uh, a lot easier from a physical standpoint and a lot harder from a, uh, emotional one um so you know I, I wanted to definitely give her her own space to do you know this this bigger story with her with the character yeah in terms of like bringing in the whole pirate setting because that is sort of a theme of this episode <laughs> um <laughs> dealing with two different pirate related series um like were there you know i i, I were there particular pirate story romances or just pirate stories in general that you're kind of drawing from here? 
Um, you know, there there are a couple um, historical pirate characters that um, that I like a lot. I, I think it's an interesting it's an interesting setting because you get you know, in actual history a couple of real strong female characters who are you know filling a military role that would not have likely been possible in, in most you know mm-hmm. settings because they're because they're on the high seas because they uh, are not abiding by rules and laws of society. Um, you know you have several like really really great uh, actual women doing you know amazing stuff throughout history, both in uh, you know both in Asia and in Europe and some in America as well. Um, but yeah, sort of all all came together to sort of inspire what I wanted to do, and I, I like. There are a lot of things I like about um, piratical history in general. That it's a very, um, it's a very democratic uh, setup where you know, uh, mm-hmm. it's historically uh, you know, people who die on missions. They, you know, their money would would be passed on to you know their living relatives, and they would had you know actual healthcare to what extent they survived, um, you know, as, as pirates and everybody was sort of on the same footing as compared to, you know, the, the military settings of that time where, um, you know, there's, there was a commander and then there was, you know, the, the sort of aristocracy running things and then there was everybody else. Yeah, you definitely head on, I think, both like the sort of pirate internal politics and structure within the series and, you know, definitely see some of the, the, the female pirate history as well. Yeah. And I, I liked, you know, we hit on a couple of things that are, I don't know, to some extent overtly political, but at the same time kind of shouldn't be, um, you know, there's a, a bit in, I think real early in the second volume of, of Raven where, you know, she's sort of doing that pirate thing of uh, insulting and name calling and, um, mm-hmm. You know, Katie brings up the question of like, is that is that what we want to do? Is that what motivates us? Like, do we want to run each other down, or you know, is this a a place of you know positivity of building people up of teaching? Um, and you know, they they sort of make that decision on the fly that like it is you know the ship is going to be democratic that Raven is in charge and you know in cases of emergency, but that uh, everybody is going to have a say. I also really adore Sunshine's line when she's like, so who here feels like you do best when you're being abused? And Sunshine is like, me, shut up. You all don't know where I'm from. It's like such a great moment. You know, the the ensemble cast, of which you introduce a great deal of characters all at once um, and develop over time, is like incredible. I I really do love them all. How did you design, like, I don't know, what is it, like 12 amazing women characters so cross for the series? Especially the greatest of all, Katie King, but we'll get back to her later. So I owe a lot to that, to. Uh, to Roe and Ted, who were my artists on the first three volumes, because I wrote the first the first volume, the first four issues, sort of all at once, and I had you know the major introductions in there of the sort of principal five characters at that point, and that it's Raven, Jayla, Sunshine, Katie, and Jimena, who are like you know that main cast that um, we sort of like take our time introducing in those first couple issues. Um, and then, you know, they were, uh, there are a couple other characters that I described sort of vaguely in the first couple scripts. And at some point, uh, Ron and Ted came to me and were like, so how many people are on this ship? Um, and I was like, well, enough to run a ship. I'm not really sure like how many we need to have. And, you know, we settled on, uh, I think there's, there's a dozen characters total, I think. Um, and they sort of sat down and designed the rest of the characters, you know, with sort of vague instructions that, like, I wanted them to be as diverse as possible. I wanted to make sure mm-hmm. that we had a couple of characters who, you know, we had a character in uh, Amira who has um, a hijab, and we have a couple of um, 
characters who are a little more, I guess, diverse in the way they, they express gender. Like Sid is not, mm-hmm. um, you know, she's, she's sort of genderless in a way. She's, um, you know, she hasn't expressed that specifically in the comic, but, um, you know, that is the way she, she dresses, like the way she expresses like herself. She's got like a soft thing going on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's definitely, you know, what we were going for there. Um, and yeah, I, I got this, you know, these pictures of these, these characters, and I was like, oh, I love all of these designs. I need to make up stories for all of these characters now. <laughs> um, so, you know, literally at the point that I got those, they were drawing, I think it's issue three, when we pull in the the larger castle of, you know, characters that are at the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they, they sent me this, and I started writing issue five, and I was like, I need backstories for all of these characters. I need to have them all introduced by name in issue five. So, like, you know, everybody has a chance to, like, oh, this is this character, this character has a name, we know, you know, there's one or two things about this character, because, you know, we are going through the whole ship and meeting everybody, and at the same time trying to advance the plot in that issue. Um, So, you know, I wanted to make sure we hit all of those. And the longer we've done it, the more characters have sort of evolved, um, you know, sometimes just out of uh, what people I put into groups, like in, you know, in Volume 2, there's a lot of, like... um, you know, they split up into three groups and characters get a chance to interact within those groups. And then sometimes those characters like end up having relationships that are, you know, go outside of that. And what I had initially envisioned, like uh, Zoe and Quinn, who like that first, or that second volume, they don't really get along. Um, you know, uh, Quinn thinks Zoe's kind of goofy. Zoe thinks Quinn is too serious. And then, you know, throughout the course of, that volume and the next couple of volumes, they start to uh, see other things in each other. Yeah, I I love those opening scenes of the folks uh, racing up the ropes and her just sort of doing the introductions of like I'm on this corner. Like there's such a funny, <laughs> believable camaraderie and jokes throughout it. Um, you know, what was it? Helen, I was last time I don't know. And like stuff like that. I mean, it's definitely a sort of comic where you can't not laugh multiple times throughout the issue. Um, and I feel like a lot of the humor is it's conversational humor that sort of sounds like your friends talking. Yeah. It's not necessarily humor that's situated in like oh pure absurdity or things that are super zany. Which is yeah, funny I think that's they're also my... like in pirate land, which is pretty far out there to start with, you know. Yeah, I mean that, that's really I think my my wheelhouse, that's what I love to do and, and love to read is, you know, these uh, interactions that come from just, you know, real life from being stuck, in this case, on a boat with a bunch of people. You have to interact with them. You can't help it. Um, and that we sort of get, uh, you know, these these relationships that spring out of that naturally. And, you know, those conversations function to be, you know, funny, but also to move the plot forward, but also to develop the characters. So, like, you know, I like to have characters that are, are likable in that way. So, like, as you sort of get this feeling that you're you're in this group of friends, you start to, you know, feel warmly toward them as well, which is, of course, you know, what makes it all that much worse when terrible things happen to them. Yeah, yeah. I um, I, I want to set a whole off on something to spoiler until the later part of the show. Because I definitely yeah. am setting this up to be a way to like lure more readers into our pirate-filled trap. Um, <laughs> so, you know, recently you were on Twitter just sort of speaking about how like you know the, the sales on the series aren't what they need to be to keep to keep it up. Like, is that something that um, Action Lab, the publisher, sort of like t- like straight up like just like tells you as a writer there, or like is it something you're sensing or? Uh, yeah, I mean it was a it was a conversation we've had as where like. So we're closing in on, you know, I've already written and the end of year two is being drawn right now, the last volume of that. We were having a discussion about, you know, whether whether or not we need to get started on year three and when we need to get started. Um, I have, you know, a bunch of stuff written already. 
we were talking about, you know, whether, whether or not we need to set up a new team moving on that right now. And, um, you know, Brian, my, my publisher said, you know, that's, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to, uh, cancel it. I, I like the book. I think it's important, but like right now the, the sales do not sustain the continued making of this book. Um, you know, cause it is a book where the, you know, the artists are paid page rate on, um, you know, that, uh, Everybody is is compensated that's involved in making the book. Good. And Yay. yeah, and so you know it does have a, a real cost attached to it that, that not all creator-owned books do um, necessarily. You know, you can you can always ask yourself to <laughs> to keep you know striving on something without getting paid, even if that's not ideal or easy. But like, yeah, there's a, a real point where a publisher has to, to look at a thing and say, all right, well, you know, the sales are not that great and they're declining, so you know, at some point we're going to have to reevaluate this and, and figure out how to move forward. Um, and yeah, that was a conversation I didn't want to have and a conversation we had to have. Um, and so like I, I, you know, before we, before we make any kind of step forward and decide what needs to change, you know, let's reach out to the people to the internet. I know there are, you know, there's, a smaller but very loyal fan base for this book and say like, look, this is what we need. We need to do better. Um, because that, that's something I complain about that I don't think uh, larger publishers do enough. They're like, I agree. Look, yeah. To, to say, look, this book is in trouble. Um, or look, this, this book is not doing what it needs to do. Instead, they just, uh, you know, cancel books <laughs> and, and people don't realize it's a problem until too late. Yeah. And- I mean, like, you just specify how much, right? So, like, if something is just completely failing and there's no chance of it, like, you know, staying up, that's one thing. Or if something is sort of more at the margins and you feel like if you can just get a few more friends to pick this up and they get a few more friends to pick this up, you know. I'm super invested in all of these characters. Sure, like, I'm invested in, like, finding revenge and killing the sexist, you know, father who, you know, all that stuff. But, like... I'm just really invested in the romances. <laughs> I, I need to I need to know how these relationships are going, and there's definitely an interesting place where one of them is right now with different potential in particular. And I need to know about it. So I appreciate being given, you know, the opportunity as a fan and supporter to to be to know that like oh you know you guys need to drive up sales so that we could like do this episode, which hopefully will hopefully will make a difference. I'm hoping. I'm hoping. Yeah, I absolutely hope so. I mean, so I think, you know, there's a tendency to trade weight and to hold off on things, and I'm I'm just as guilty of that as anybody else. But like, hopefully, you know, I spent time, I spent a lot of time with you know Unstoppable Wasp, telling people like uh, at Marvel, like, look, this book is going to to perform better in trade. It's going to you know be something that that takes off when it hits that market, and. Uh, mm-hmm. You know they they have you know very specific ideas and and benchmarks for what they want to do. I think this was a chance for us as a, a small press and me as a creator to sort of put my money where my mouth was and say like, look, this is my book. I don't want this you know to get canceled. I want to keep doing this. Um, I feel like there's support out there, um, but it needs to become like actual monetary support at some point for this book to keep going. Um, and I, I think. You know, it's it's definitely had an effect. Um, it's a little it's a little difficult to to see how much it has been so far. I know like Amazon is seems to be sold out of just about all forms of, of Raven at this point. Um, you know, I know some people have, have pre-ordered Volume Five, which is great. Um, you know, we we want to make sure to to get people on top of that too. But uh, yeah, I've definitely heard from a couple of you know, friends in comic book stores, you know, they've had people coming in asking about it, which is, you know, that's ideal. Like we, we want to get that sort of business to local comic shops because there's a lot of people there that, you know, have done a great job supporting us and, you know, are, are turning people on to, you know, good books like ours and others all the time. And, you know, I'd like to be able to like support those shops and share that community with people you know, I, I know there's people that don't have local shops or don't have any anything yeah. where to shop anywhere near them, or if they do have a shop, it's not a shop that is particularly friendly to them. Um, 
And, you know, those, those people, I'm more than happy to help them find Comixology or Amazon mm-hmm. uh, or, or wherever else. Um, but yeah, I, I really, I really hope that, uh, you know, hearing what we're doing and, and hearing about, uh, our, our need for some help on that front is, is enough to influence people to, to go out and pick it up. Well, actually, I was going to say, so, like, your trades are sold out. So does that count? Do they care? Or does it only, do they only care about individual floppies that are being sold month by month right now for the new stuff? I mean, they definitely care. The individual floppies are a little easier to, like, calculate, um, you know, the, the difference, the impact that we've had. Um, but I think the the trades matter. I think it's a little hard to tell immediately how big an impact we have because uh, even, you know, wherever people are getting them, whether it be at a local shop or from Amazon or Barnes & Noble or, or whatever, they're all coming from Diamond. So, uh, you know, if Diamond still has some in stock, they'll unfortunately slowly uh, refill places like Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and any comic shop that reorders stuff. Um, but it's, it takes a little longer to see those numbers come through, I think. So, so for folks who want to support the comic, the comic, does it only matter for them to buy the most recent issues, or does it help, does it help folks to buy? Because like it's doing or to put in pre-orders, or does it help to buy any of it in general? I think it helps to buy everything. Every, everything that's out there, um, you know, is is definitely a, a mark in our column. I think pre-ordering stuff uh, specifically is a very good way to um, show that increased interest to help out there. So you know, if you put in a, a pre-order either for the single issues or for the next volume, which is already solicited, it's already available to pre-order on Amazon as well. Um, that definitely sends a message to the publisher, but every, every book that we sell, um, you know, is, is a a book that we sell, uh, you know, really, really makes a difference. Well, I'm glad that Action Lab thinks about it this way, because there's definitely other publishers who literally only care about pre-ordering for for like whatever's the best most floppy, which is a surefire way to tank any comic that doesn't have a Wednesday warrior you know, white guy in his thirties and older kind of audience. Um, so yay. Um, yeah. Well, definitely one of the spaces that it feels like there's a lot of active fans of your comic is on is on Tumblr, and I you always know, do such a great job of doing the new fan interactions there. And again, I think that one of the reasons why the comic is just at least to be popular on Tumblr is because of the romantic subplot. I mean, you're talking about a, a, a social media space where people will pull out the ship-worthy channels from comics that aren't even about these things mm-hmm. and post around them. And here we have a comic that has ships on a ship. I didn't know I was going there until I until I went there, Jeremy. I'm sorry. Um, that was really terrible. Not the first time. Terrible it won't be the last. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I said it's not the first time, and it won't be the last. <laughs> So, you know, I think that that's part of finding the audience. Um, I mean, what do you think makes for a good romantic subplot? Um, I think, you know, caring about the characters in the first place uh, is definitely an important ingredient of that. Um, I think uh, offering sort of diverse romances, something that's, you know, different than, than what people are seeing in other places, certainly, um, you know, in, in our book we have, several female-female romances, which um, it's, I don't know, it's not that rare in comics, but it's rare in certain types of comics. Um, and if you go to SBX, you're going to get one of those on pretty much every table. <laughs> but, um, you know, if you go to your, your shop on any given Wednesday, you, you probably won't see a lot of that. You definitely won't see it in a lot of, um, you know, YA and, and all-ages books. Um, so I think, you know, giving people something different, giving people something that they can relate to and to some extent like building a romance um, is important like because it you know you don't want to um, you don't want to fake people out you don't want to bait people into thinking a thing's going to be a thing that isn't a thing but you do want to take the time to kind of build it up and, and make sure that um, you know it feels natural to the characters and that people are invested in it um, you know the and the romantic subplot between, you know, uh, Raven and Jimena has been going on since, 
you know, the third issue at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, honestly, we, we sort Before of touch on that in the flashback. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, like, that's definitely something that's that's ongoing, and they're both, to some extent, you know, hopeless. Uh, there's, there's, you know, there's real obstacles in there, um, you know, from their past, but there's also, um, you know, the, the obstacles of, of both of them being sort of horribly bad at being in love with each other. Um, and there are also being other romantic interests for them there that are all great. Like, how do you even choose, yeah. you know? Well, yeah, and I think that's the thing is, like, there's that established relationship from the beginning, but then there's Sunshine who, like, mm-hmm. she's she's very good at, you know, uh, liking Raven and makes it very clear to her um, and is, you know, is a is a rogue in all the all the best ways. Um, you know, so I, I think that complicates things a lot. And uh, it was funny to me as I started writing the book and it started coming out. It's that I was I was very invested from the beginning in like the the Raven and Jimena relationship. And after that first volume, I had a lot of people that were like. Oh no, definitely Raven and Sunshine. Like that's the good one. That's that's the that's the one we want to see happen. And I was like, really? I I was pretty sure that I was trying to convince you otherwise. Um, but yeah, you know, I think that that character is so both charismatic and both uh, so. I mean, she's uh, in a lot of ways she's kind of a, a sad puppy too. You know, um, you you want her to feel good, you want her to be happy because she is so obviously invested in this. Yeah, yeah. I think like, you know, fans are sometimes just gonna go in the direction that we're gonna go in. I feel like that was you know, I don't want to have to I don't like everybody, but I, I enjoy all these relationships. And then, well, you know what, I wanna put a pen on the uh, current state of affairs so that we don't do spoilers. Quite yet, so let's talk a little bit about Sea of Thieves. Um, tell me, how did that series get started? Um, so that was um, this really cool uh, setup in which you know I, I knew about Sea of Thieves already. You know, the the game was getting ready to come out, and I, I'd seen a lot of like early clips and stuff about it. I was really interested in it, and um, you know, I've I've been a big fan of um, games by Rare for years. I mean, I. And grew up on Donkey Kong Country and stuff like that. So um, at some point uh, earlier this year, or I guess last year, um, Titan contacted me, you know, saying they were um, looking to do this comic for the Sea of Thieves game. They were interested in me uh, sort of pitching what I would want to do with it. Um, and, like, it was immediately something I was, I was excited to, to check out. Um, I think the most the most interesting thing about pitching it was that uh, it is a massive multiplayer online RPG so there is no central character. The central character for your story is you, um, you know, whoever, whatever character you make. Um, so while there's this big established world with mythology and everything, um, there's not a character that we, I have to like figure out and jump into we had to sort of decide what kind of story we wanted to tell and create the characters that uh, we wanted to tell the story with. Um, so that was, was really fun. Um, I knew, like, at least for this initial story, we're doing a four-issue uh, miniseries. Uh, we're going to see, you know, how it goes, how it tells from there. But the uh, four issue, you know, doing a four-issue story, I wanted to do something that was going to give us a chance to, you know, keep driving, keep going forward through the whole thing, get to explore a lot of the world in a short time. So uh, created the story that's the race. Um, basically, there's these two, uh, there's these two pirates, a brother and a sister, who are um, the son and daughter of this um, great, renowned, beloved pirate. Um, and they, they both sort of get an invitation to come to this... Uh, uh, bar to to get a map to the Sea of Thieves, which is a sort of mystical uh, land full of, of magic and treasure, um, where their their father has disappeared too long ago at this point. Um, and 
you know, from there, they, they both sort of get a map to, or they're both supposed to get a map to where their father's gold is. Um, but from the beginning, they immediately start sort of backstabbing each other and uh, trying to get in each other's way and um, trying to claim the gold for themselves. Is is an interesting challenge because basically we get to introduce the um, the entire concept of the game, the story, and two crews worth of characters, which ends up being eight characters total within you know the span of uh, span of the first issue, and uh, you know manage to tell a what's hopefully a satisfying four issue story by the end. Of it. <laughs> it's a it's a big challenge. I, I like I like things that challenge me writing wise, and that's uh, it's been a ton of fun. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, I don't know the video game. I wasn't familiar with the setting or anything, but it definitely but feels definitely like a Jeremy Whitley comic. It has the banter, the backstabbing, the pirates, the pirates, <laughs> and lots of female characters. Yeah. Yeah, I think Rare did a really great job with the game of making it really friendly to everybody and that, um, you know, you get to create the kind of character you want. So you can have a male or a female character. Uh, and specifically, one of the things that I like is that you get to decide, you know, uh, how your character looks and dresses. So it is entirely possible if you want to, to have a, you know, not particularly gendered character to have a, uh, you know, a, a female character who dresses conservatively or a male character who doesn't, um, you know, you can make your characters any size you want, any shape you want. They, um, you know, they allow for a wide variety of, of character creation, which a lot of games don't. Um, so mm. I wanted to sort of reflect that in our, in our characters. So it's sort of evenly split male and female characters. And, um, you know, there are a lot of different shapes, sizes, ethnicities. They all look pretty distinctive, which I think, uh, is also helpful when you're trying to introduce eight new characters in, in four issues and, you know, have everybody keep them straight. Yeah, definitely. Having the different faces and designs. I I feel like I, I remember when I met Rebecca Sugar at Comic-Con and it was right before Steven Universe was released and I said, I, you know, I noticed I said to her, like, I think it's so fabulous that you have these characters with these very different figures, which is, you know, not something you get to see that much in in cartoons or in anything. And she said, well, it's better character design to have characters with different bodies. And I'm like, yes. And as an added bonus, it looks more like people than you would see. Um, so that's definitely something that, you know, I see throughout all of your comics, actually. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, that's something I, I definitely try uh, try to do a lot. I think it's somewhere, I think it's one of those areas where trying to tell stories with diverse characters and making good comics intersects fairly like has a sort of a one-to-one Venn diagram because like Mm -hmm. not only like does that cover you for, you know, having diverse characters, but if your characters have distinctive designs and different shapes and sizes in those, you know, panels that you have to do, which are long shots or group shots, it's very easy to tell them apart. You know, I, I think, that's that's somewhere where I find a lot of like licensed comics have problems, um, like when uh, when the Buffy comics first started coming out after the show ended. My my wife was reading those religiously, but there would be places where you know you'd have sort of the whole cast of the show, which like they're very easy to tell the difference of when you're like watching the show, but like because, when you're reading yeah. a comic and there are you know three blonde white guys of sort of average height at a medium distance. It's like, which one of those is Oz and which one is Xander and which one is, I I can't tell who's who in this story. Yeah. I mean, it's, well, part of the reason in in, in shows it's, you do hear people complain about things like, for example, in Game of Thrones, like, oh, these guys have brown hair, white skin, and beards, and I actually can put people apart because I pay attention to people's face shapes, which is something that apparently even a lot of artists seem to be blind to. But, um, but you know, yeah, it's like, at least in the shows generally, you, you do have different face shapes. And then a lot of the times in comics, artists will give literally the same exact ratio of eyes to nose to cheek the layout of the face for like every character and I don't understand why that's just something that people do but yeah I and mean, I've certainly pointed out that there are uh, 
particular artists out there who have particular faces that they gravitate towards, especially female faces, where, you know, mm-hmm. every every female face is sort of a, a recolored version of the same face. <laughs> and, um, and um, their idea of what is attractive is so narrow that it like, doesn't even actually reflect what, like, what people beyond they themselves might find to be attractive. By the way, yeah. I can literally I mean, hear an echo of everything I'm saying. Do you hear that? I do not. Okay. Well, that's good. Moving along. Uh, yeah, so the, which brings me to everyone's favorite character from Raven, which is Katie King. Um, I think when you were first on the show to talk about this, and, and the series did get brought up, um, you talked about her being sort of physically inspired by Brienne of Tarth from Game of Thrones, but also but not, like not um, tortured feeling. Although they definitely share a very hardworking philosophy, loyalty, and sort of honor-bound, duty-bound approach to the world. Yeah, but um, you know, I, I, there's this amazing issue, I guess, midway through season one, where one of the other characters tells her, like, "Look, I just you just need to know that." Everyone has a crush on you. And there was this wonderful moment of this like character who you can see how, especially in dialogue with her mom, if I'm not mistaken, um, from earlier in the series, has sort of been told that people wouldn't find her attractive because she's like a large, strong woman. Um, it's like, actually not true at all. Everybody's coddling you all the time. And then you rewarded us with giving us her uh, yet giving us yet another panel of her steering in her tank top. So, so thank you for understanding our needs. I guess is what I'm saying. Oh, it, it's it's my pleasure. Yeah, I think it was it's sort of funny in that um, you know I started writing this character as you know specifically um, you know yeah like like Brienne of Tarth and that she's you know large and, and muscular, um, broad shouldered. Um, yeah, without all of the like issues that Brandon Tarth has as a the character, she's very, you know, obviously down on herself and um has you know, a, a lot of things that have been drilled into her by the, the sort of social contracts and or uh, social conventions in that story. Um which I, I didn't want to give too much of to Katie. I wanted her to uh you know, not particularly see herself as, as attractive, but for it not necessarily to be a thing that she considers. Um, and then, you know, there, there is, um, in at the beginning of the, the second year, there's a big fight with her and um, the my unfortunately named villain, Melancholy Johnny, um, who, like, you know, insults her and, and talks trash about her size and everything. And... Uh, yeah, it's it's sort of you get to see her kind of come out of her shell to some extent and and you know talk herself up, but yeah, you also get to see that like there are you know there are definitely people who uh, find her attractive who are into her, and that's uh, that's a thing that you know we've we've sort of revisited a couple of times, and uh, fans have definitely been interested in. Uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, Sora did a cover for. Uh, year two, I think it was uh, issue two um, or issue three, where it's sort of a, a very beefcakey cover of Katie, you know, climbing the, um, <laughs> climbing the mast. So that was something I specifically like. Uh, I, I wanted to go, you know, something more more beefcakey and less cheesecakey on on her pinup. <laughs> And that's exactly what we wanted. And the we, we mean me and people like me. So thank you. Um, you know, and it's not just her, right? Like you really do have a range of gender expression among the characters and women of different sizes and shapes. And I mean, all of your artists have been able to handle that like right on, right away. Yeah, and I, I think you know, I think Roe had a huge crush are also on Katie not, like, too. Super senior people in the industry, so it shows you that like these artists who are even, who are you know new. They know how to do this. So I don't know what's with the uh, excuses for some of the other people out there. Out there. Yeah, I I don't know. I think you know, for a lot of creators, be they artists or writers, they get uh, 
locked into doing a thing the way they think is the right way. And uh, they don't stop to consider that, you know, not only may that not be the right way, but there may be more than one way to do it correctly. Um, and I, I think, you know, you see those reactions from people, not just in, in our stuff, but um, you know, a step on stage is I think somebody that like people see his stuff and there's this sort of uh, love for, you know, the, these things that uh, I think some of the more conservative or white male or antagonistic people in comics would think that, you know, the rest of us wouldn't like, but they're done with a level of, of respect and characterization that like is good and interesting and, and, you know, uh, tells you things about the characters other than boobs, you know? Yeah. Thank you. That's very well said. Um, so uh, I think maybe we can go into perhaps a more spoiler section, perhaps of the episode tonight. Um, we uh, right. one of the things that I've been really excited to see in the more recent issues is um, you're introducing a a story about uh, what happens. What happens to uh, sunshine after she gets, you know, I get, what, what we believe, you know, drowns off the side of the boat, but it's in fact in a domed domicile under the sea. And you start with this amazing, you know, sort of fantasy story of this idealized uh, place where there's a queen and she rescues all the women who've been thrown away. And it's you think it's going to be going in one direction in terms of how it's going to be thinking about like abuse and manipulation, but you are not doing that. You're doing something different instead. Um, I, I, it was really quite an awesome revelation, really. Thank you. Um, so, yeah. So I'm really appreciating um, the sort of reveal here with um, – when it turns out that the benefactor, the queen who runs the island, is perhaps manipulating people, and um, I don't know, it's sort of a. I, I love this idea of this like idealized place that does seem like it's like this feminist refuge from the world, but it's also yes, you know, sort of another place where people are being manipulated with emotionally in different ways. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, sort of, what was the what, what's sort of your desire going into going into that story? Um. So I, I wanted to, uh, to some extent, I, I wanted to you know break the crew up a little bit and give um, I wanted to give Sunshine a, a chance to sort of shine as a character away from the you know uh, love triangle relationship, which I felt like was making her. Uh, slowly into more of a villain as the um, the story went on, um, you know, and give her a chance to sort of have a different option, um, you know, as as far as life and romance and and everything, um, and that's that's sort of where that sprung up. As you know, we sort of uh, she she goes off the side of the boat and she can't swim, and it looks like you know she's she's died, but She's she's rescued by these uh, mermaids that that work for the queen that runs this island called the Heart of the Sea. Um, and the Heart of the Sea, it's a little little difficult to tell from what we've set up, and it is not quite underwater, but is uh, surrounded by this sort of wall of storms. Um, so it's, it's inaccessible from the outside. Um, so basically, these are all women who have, um, you know been lost at sea in some way and has been rescued by these mermaids and brought back to this place where they're, they're sort of part of a collection, which, uh, you know, the, the queen has established here. And it's, it's odd in that it is sort of a, it is a utopia. Like it is, you know, a place where sunshine can be and enjoy herself and have, um, you know, romantic escapades and several of the other characters there uh, are too. 
and um, you n- not have to not have to do anything, not have to fight or steal or uh, you know deal with uh, men for that matter. Um, but <laughs> this, this, I think you know we sort of hint a little bit at the at the end of uh, issue six that like there is there is some manipulation going on there. Um, and like, is, I think the question is, is whatever's going on bad enough or negative enough for like it to be worth rebelling against? And to some extent, uh, because sunshine is who she is, the answer to that is almost always going to be yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, you know, it seems like somebody is trying to, make her turn left regardless of you know whether all the good stuff everything that she wants is on the left if she feels like she's being pushed that way she's going to go right um even if you know there's there's no good reason um because somebody is manipulating her she's going to push back and you know she's she's sort of gotten this question of like what does she do now like she knows you know she she sort of settles into this good life over, you know, the course of, of the few weeks that she's there and, you know, sort of accepts that she's separated from her crew and she's probably not going to be able to get back to them. She doesn't know where they are or where she is um, in relation to them. And so, like, she has this other option. She can live what seems to be a pretty happy life, but she sort of gets this, this feeling that the strings are being pulled um, and that you know, immediately sits poorly with her. So she's she's very much at a crossroads going into, um, you know, she's, she's not in issue uh, seven at all, which is the upcoming issue, which is going to focus on everybody back on the ship. But uh, uh-huh. issue eight, she's going to have to choose which direction she's going. Thank you. I feel like that's definitely carried by the text, and I like the way you talk about it. So thank you yeah. for jumping in there. I, I, I've been joking a lot about how much I've enjoyed some of the background characters and action that you see sort of in the end of the Wizzy Dome, including the exciting romantic adventures of background centaur. Um, and since we know that, like, Raven got her own spin-off series because she appeared in Princeless, I'm wondering if the uh, the centaur woman we see flirting with a potential paramour in the background of issue, what was it, issue six of season two? Um, perhaps she yeah. deserves her own spinoff of her dating uh, of her dating exploits. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Well, uh, it, it's interesting to me because that um, that issue, you know, I, I was saying that, you know, we need to have a whole bunch of women in the background of this story, you know, they are on uh, this island that they need to have all sorts of different backgrounds and look all sorts of different ways. And I, I'm not even sure if I suggested that there be a centaur, but uh, <clears throat> I got the, I got those pages. Hello? Hello? Oh, no, I don't hear you. Hold on one second. Okay, so Jeremy just uh, got dropped. I'm going to message him right now and remind, tell him he needs to call right back in. I apologize. Bear with us, listeners. I would really love to have a real audio engineer and not just be airing this show live. That would be amazing. Oh, here we go. All right. And you're back. I'm so here. Like, <laughs> I'm back. Making a point. Okay. What was that? Yeah. Sorry. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I, you know, gave this sort of idea to Christine of that I, I wanted to have, you know, a variety of background characters, and it came back to me with sort of this uh, unfolding romance in the background between this uh, you know, female centaur and her her girlfriend, and uh, yeah, you know, I guess if uh, if the legions of fans of background female centaur, uh, you know, start a start a letter writing campaign, I'm sure we'll, we'll be able to uh, keep that story going. But yeah, that's. I think that's a great example of, you know, Christine sort of uh, taking this, this idea that I sort of threw out there and, and making it, you know, really bringing it to life in a, a way that, you know, I wouldn't have, I mean, obviously I didn't write and didn't think of doing. 
I mean, you really built a fantasy world populated by a bajillion different female characters who are all having their own lives and their own stories in different ways and are all, like, coming from different places. And it's amazing. Like, you, you really don't need any men. Um, though I really do appreciate the way you've dealt with men in Princeless and boys and sort of the way you've addressed the way that they are limited in their roles and how sexism affects them. And how sexism affects them as well. But um, but I really just like the fact that you can just do this whole series and it feels like every all of these different female characters, including the ones in the background, really have lives of their own. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then that's that's something I I definitely wanted to do. And I, I feel like, I mean, I don't like to toot my own horn about stuff too much, but like it's definitely something that like comics should be able to do, but is surprisingly uh, rare and that, you know, it, it seems to be difficult for uh, some, some writers to have different female voices in their story for, you know, their female characters to look and sound and feel like different people. Um, and, you know, that's, I, I think, you know, we've, we've shown pretty well that that's, it's possible to have an entire cast of very different types of female characters and, and, you know, even in the background sort of give them personality, uh, which, you know, a lot of that is, is owed to having fantastic artists on the book between, you know, Christine Hip who's drawing this volume and um, Zenia Pamphill who drew, you know, the, the previous volume, and Rosie and Ted who drew, you know, the first, the first, you know, three volumes basically. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's been lots of really great artists who jumped in on the series and have some really beautiful compositions and layouts. I really love the underwater dome design. Yeah, I, I liked. Yeah, you know, it, it was. I think um, it, that's the castle. I think as a as having the glass walls with the water inside sort of started out as this like need to solve a problem of like how mermaids can get around in a castle and um you know ended up being sort of it went from being a bug to being a feature you know um you know we, we get to play around with having these you know glass walls everywhere where you can sort of see the mermaids moving around but you might you might not be able to see everything that's behind them I love the design of the mermaids as well yeah, that was that was very intentional. That's something Christine and I went back and forth a bit on because I wanted to make sure that we had a mermaid that that looked both ethnically diverse, but also like different types of fish. Um, mm-hmm. Because you know, um, I, I think a lot of that, at least my my thinking on that, was inspired by uh, sitting next to Afua Richardson at a lot of conventions, and she has a, a collection of you know, black mermaids that she's drawn that are all just these, these beautiful painted fish designs, these bright oranges and reds and everything with, um, you know, mixed with having actual diverse skin on the human part. And, uh, it's like, man, I, I love to read like stories of mermaids that look like this rather than all of them looking like, you know, Ariel with slightly different color, hair color. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Um, well, uh, Jeremy, again, like I, I just, I, I want to be able to make sure that we get more Raven Private Princess, and um, I'm definitely really excited about CFDs as well. It was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And um, do you have anything else that you are able to tell us about that's coming up soon? Um. Well, we are uh, currently getting ready to finish up the seventh volume of Princeless, um, which will hopefully uh, be started a little later this year. Um, so that's, that is coming along nicely. Emily is, is drawing it. And uh, Christine, who did this volume of, of Raven, is actually uh, inking that as well. Um, so that, that, this is by far the most beautiful volume of, of Princeless we've had yet, I think. Emily has continued to, you know, step up her game with every volume she does. Um, so this this looks really great. I'm really excited about uh, where we're going in this volume. This volume involves the the Black Knight pretty heavily, um, 
So we finally get to, to learn more about the Black Knight and uh, who the Black Knight is. So that's, that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I do have more stuff coming up that I can't talk about yet. Um, we are actually just wrapping up the uh, Legends of Magic series over at My Little Pony, which has been, um, it's been a ton of fun. Um, where we've got the annual coming out, I think, in the next couple of weeks. And then um, we're, I'm getting ready to start a miniseries over there that they haven't announced yet, but I think people are going to love Ooh. when they do announce it. Um, yeah, so that's, that's super exciting. Um, and then uh, I think something a lot of people didn't catch the first time that, that just finally made its way out in the stores in the last couple of weeks is the... Uh, Thor versus Hulk Champions of the Universe uh, miniseries that I did, which was a uh, comicsology exclusive when it first came out, but it's finally in print, in trade. Um, so anybody that you know loved Ragnarok or loves you know goofy, fun Marvel Universe stories, it's uh, it is that in space. Um, you know, it's a fun sort of competition story between Hulk and Thor and. Um, you know, involves the uh, the champion of the universe, who's uh, one of my favorite elders of the universe, a guy that just basically goes from world to world, challenging people to fight. Wow! And wow. is there, you know, Jeff Goldblooming in it? No Jeff Goldblooming in it, um, because you know the Grandmaster is is being used elsewhere in the Marvel universe pretty pretty heavily right now. Uh, we wanted to go with the champion, but we actually got to uh, create our own elder of the universe to go with him um, because I am sometimes a uh, a nerd for wrestling stuff. The thing about the champion is that he's a, a big, tough guy who's not particularly charismatic. And when you get one of those, you need a good promoter to go with him. Um, <laughs> so we, we created the, the elder of the universe, the promoter, who... Uh, I love her dearly, and she has the the power to do just about anything that needs to be done as long as she is use, doing it in aid of somebody else. So uh, she can't she can't go out of her way to help herself, but as long as she's helping the champion, uh, she can manipulate Thor and Hulk pretty much any way she wants to. Wow, I'm definitely wow. interested now. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, and I'm looking forward to hearing about the other things when you're able to announce them. Uh, let our listeners know uh, where they can find your stuff on the Internet. Uh, well, I am on Twitter at uh, jrome58. So it's J-R-O-M-E-5-8. Um, I'm also on Tumblr, as you mentioned before, at uh, princelesscomic.tumblr.com. Where I'm constantly talking about, uh, you know, Raven and Princess and Wasp and Sea of Thieves and anything else I might be working on at the moment, um, which has been fun. Um, and then, uh, obviously, the uh, the comics are all available through Comicsology, be it Raven or Wasp or uh, Thor versus Hulk, obviously. Um, and then uh, there's a large post on Tumblr about Raven, about saving Raven, which gives a, a long list of, of different ways in which people can help and save Raven in various ways. Cool. Well, I'm going to be sharing that out again, of course, because I have a very strong agenda here. So thank you for joining us on the show again, Jeremy, and I look forward to having you back on again, and we can also talk about how you're totally going to get a glad award for Raven. Michael, and uh, and make that happen. That's my prediction for the next year. And um, all right. So thank you. And so for our listeners, uh, next week we'll be back on Monday. Um, in order to get everyone prepared for the upcoming uh, Avengers Infinity War movie, I will be joined by James Hancock, film critic who does the Wrong Real podcast. And he is a big expert in Jim Starlin, as well as a film critic. So we're going to be sort of doing a pre-Infinity War preview issue where we'll be looking at Jim Starlin's comics that were reflected in Infinity War, i.e. his work on Captain Marvel and Infinity Gauntlet and uh, 
Adam Warlock and all this other like Bronze Age stuff that really I should say uh, that uh, a lot of us might not necessarily know or have read. And in preparing for watching the new movie, and then I'm going to be off at um, Universal FanCon in the end of the month, which is brought to you by the folks from the Nerds of Color and Black Girl Nerds. It's like the big. Uh, diverse media focused fan convention and I believe Jeremy will be there as well what booth will they be finding you at? I do not know my booth number but I will absolutely be there and uh, uh, I think I'll be on several panels as well so I should be very easy Excellent. to find Excellent. and I will be teaching a workshop on fan activism so if you've missed one of the ones I did at FlameCon or at AwesomeCon you should totally come by to this if you want a refresher I think it'll also just be a great place to meet other fans who, like you, want to go out there, kick some ass, and change the world. So thanks, everybody. And uh, as Brett would say if he were joining us, keep it geeky. Oh, gosh, I shouldn't do the sign-off yet. I forgot to say. I didn't even introduce myself. That was how badly I lost my entry this month, um, this week, I should say. I'm Ilana Levin, a.k.a. Ilana Brooklyn. I'm on Twitter all the goddamn time, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. Um, this episode is going to be at graphicpolicy.com, our iTunes channel, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. So if you came in late, you'll be able to listen to the whole thing from the beginning there and share it on those platforms as well. Graphicpolicy.com is our site, comic news, reviews, and essays, um, and I think really thoughtful content about the intersection of comics and politics that you just won't see everywhere else. Um, so be sure to check out Graphic Policy. And with that, keep it geeky.